the optimal life. Dr. Jill, how are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Um, I really enjoy your work and I, I really appreciate that you're shining a light for people in terms of mental health. So thank you for having me. You say that to everybody, don't you? I say to people that dedicate their lives to spreading the word about mental health. Okay, <laughs> good, good, good. I appreciate the kind. I appreciate the kind words. Uh, this is a topic that I, I like to focus on because I think mental health is clearly so important for us um, to be functional people in society, to be emotionally well, to be able to be the good, a great parent like yourself. All, all these things, we have to be really sound within ourselves. So this is a big one for me. Um, talk to us about EMDR. I know that's one of your specialties. What exactly is that? Okay. Wow. You're jumping right in. So, um, first off, uh, back in 2014, the world health organization did a meta analysis of all of the different trauma modalities. And from all of that, um, research review, they came out with a statement that EMDR and trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy were the only recommended modalities for trauma treatment in adolescents, children, and adults. And obviously, you know, that will change every five to 10 years and the best practice guidelines will change according to research. So EMDR was created in the 1980s by Francine Shapiro. And Francine Shapiro famously said that Everybody has 10 to 20 memories in their life responsible for all of the pain and processing each memory is like taking a log out of the fire. So EMDR actually stands for eye movement, desensitization and reprocessing. And if it's okay with you, I'll, I'll give you the story of how she happened upon it because it's so, I guess, unusual. Um, she was a PhD student of English literature at NYU and she got diagnosed with cancer and she was obviously in that state of panic and confusion about the future, took a walk in the woods, and she noticed that the cicadic eye movements, those sideways, side-to-side -side eye movements, were associated with, you know, reducing her emotional distress. So then she, you know, switched over to psychology and started researching just eye movement desensitization. That's how it began, is can the eye movements, you know, be correlated with reducing emotional distress. But then as the modality uh, became established in the 90s, you know, the 80s, 90s, um, they started to create a method where first you install positive feeling state, like the felt sense of safety, safety in your body, being in the presence of someone you love and trust, but also desensitizing painful memories and changing the meaning you made of the memory at the time. For example, if it's a memory that made you feel unsafe, it would now be, and now I'm safe. Or if it's a memory that made you feel like I'm a bad person, it might change to, I did the best that I could, or it wasn't my fault. Um, so it's, it's a modality around reducing the emotional distress and changing the meaning you made of a memory at the time. How does that happen? Doctor, I mean, you're, you're talking about somebody that went through something very traumatic. They felt unsafe and it caused them a lot of anxiety, a lot of heartache, a lot of pain. How do you reframe that? What are some of the things you're doing, generally speaking, then to allow them to say, OK, that that memory isn't what it used to be? So the first thing that I like to do when I meet someone 
is um, a person will come to therapy and they'll tell you their life story through their eyes. And it's very much kind of like when you're watching a movie or reading a book and the person is telling you their life story. And sometimes they're dramatic irony where you know more than they do. And sometimes they're, they know more than you. But what I listen for when a person is telling me their story is their beliefs. And those beliefs could be, you know, I'm unworthy, I'm unlovable, I'm a bad person, I'm not safe, I'm powerless. And all of those emotions, those beliefs were learned through painful life experiences. And then we create timelines of, you know, three to five times in your life when you're made to feel that way. And then those become memory targets. And then when you kind of go back you know, a lot of them are the bite that fits the wound and they all float back to a core memory, often in childhood. And when you go into that core memory with a compassionate witness and you have one foot in the present and one foot in the past, a lot of people learn as they navigate that early core memory that as a child, their childlike interpretation of the event was evoking a sense of secrecy, shame and silence. And um, as you navigate it together and you shine a light on it, when you are in it together, first off, that takes away the shame and the silence. And when there's another person with you, you're not really in your cognitive looping. And, you know, the more that you're in those key memories, you take away their power. So it's a difficult question you're asking. It's a very good question, but you'd it would be very helpful if you gave a key memory or if you could even give an example that that's where the attachment injury comes in that's what that's con- considered correct well yeah i i noticed um from my clients that some of the deepest pain that people have in their life is in the context of their experiences and close relationships and um often you know how a person moves through the world their emotional map they're carrying with them how they learn to love and trust and communicate at a very young age. And if it's okay with you, I'll just give you a background theory. Um, Fairborn, he was a Scottish psychiatrist in 1940s Scotland. He was very interested in researching emotionally abused and neglected children. And what he discovered was, wow, they, you know, they, they're all telling me the same story. They're all saying, I'm a bad kid and if I was better, this wouldn't be happening. Um, or if I did more of this, there'd be less of this. And he was interested in this defensive, you know, accountability of why they take blame. And if you think about it, when you're a child, you've very little control over your life. You can't say this is a very toxic person. I'm going to take space. The bullies in the schoolyard and the antagonists at home are to be tolerated with little discernment or choice around space or boundaries or self-advocacy so what you do is you often pathologically accommodate and uh, children will take ownership for things that are not their fault because it gives them the illusion of control it creates a fallacy that they live in a fair and just family system and they believe that they can take a little bit of their power back if they absorb the badness of the objects the antagonizers But if you have this over-accountability and the self-blame over a long period of time, that's a perfect recipe for toxic shame. Mm -hmm. And then when you have that in your emotional map and you graduate from your family system and you're out in the world making decisions about work and partners and lovers, 
we repeat what is familiar. So I hope that makes sense. Yeah. So what does that look like? How does that actually manifest itself into an adult life where you've got all those complex layers upon layers, correct? Over the years. Well, that's a great question. So you accept the love that you believe you deserve. And there's a sense of expectancy in terms of how you'll be received in the world. And if you, if you learned survival through adaptation, it's best if I'm quiet and internalize my emotions and don't ask for a lot and don't take up a lot of space and be submissive and walk on eggshells. That's a very good way of me being safe in an unpredictable, volatile household. Then you'll unconsciously go back to that familiar style or those familiar characters at, you know, the unexamined history is doomed to repetition because to quote Freud, we repeat rather than remember. So what it can look like is um, your ability to navigate safety and navigate, you know, boundaries and self-advocate, it's diminished and you've little confidence in yourself and your discernment and your baseline in terms of what is safe and what is respectful and what is comfortable for me. And there can be a lot of continuous intrusion trauma. Mm-hmm. What about, you You mentioned emotional neglect and, and some forms of abuse, but what about uh, abandonment, so specifically from a parent-child uh, relationship? The child is abandoned at a young age by his or her own parent to never really have a, a, a communication with them again. How do you handle something like that? So abandonment is a very painful wound because it's not just what happened, it's what didn't get to happen. Um, the goodbye you didn't get to have, how you filled that silence in your head. And and some people will- But let me just stop you real quick, doctor. The goodbye that you did, even if you did get the goodbye, it's still abandonment, right? It absolutely is. Yeah. You know, and abandonment comes in many different forms. And, you know, in the absence of having the person, you create an internal story and you try to make meaning of the abandonment and take into account the moral defense, you know, that fairborn theory, the child will often try to take some level of control or accountability for the abandonment. You know, they, the child will blame blame himself. They'll blame themselves. They'll they won't say, well, my parent wasn't ready to be a parent and they're a very selfish, immature person. They're gonna say, if I was more of this or less of this, maybe it could have been different. Mm. And that internal story can be very haunting. I can't imagine how you can, that, that's got to re- be very, very difficult to break those chains in your adult life when you've been abandoned by your own parent to then be able to somehow feel safe ever again. Well, yes, relational trauma needs relational repair. So when a person is showing up to therapy every week and a person is being vulnerable and a person's offering their heart in a platter and, you know, naming really hard things that's the beginnings that's the seeds of the emotional repair and and even if they are feeling unsafe or untrusting in the process or even if they inadvertently push you away or put up walls that relational repair is very slowly happening over time and they're learning not to be as maybe self-reliant to a fault or internalizing with their emotions and they're actually letting another person in. And if that happens, you know, the concept of synergy is how you do one thing is how you do all things. 
they can start to replicate that outside with with other people on the outside. And that's what you hope for because um, that relational repair, learning to love and be loved and to receive compassion is is huge. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's where you come in. And I know that you have multiple different specialties. You also talk about this intensive therapy experience that you provide some clients. The, the, the one, the example we're talking about seems to fit that mold. So I kind of want to just touch on a few of these things that you incorporate in these experiences. And if you could elaborate a little bit, we talked about EMDR. What's this mind body techniques? So in terms of it's the relationship between the mind and the body and the body feels the pain that you don't allow yourself to express. So a lot of people will feel certain somatizations or have strange physical symptoms. And when we start to look at the words and the thoughts and the emotions behind those sensations, um, you start to get an undercurrent of unresolved trauma. And it's all about unburdening the person and facilitating a release within them. Um, I like to teach people strategies that they'll have in their back pocket and they'll take with them wherever they go. And they can, you know, when they get certain somatic cues in their body, they're able to communicate with that symptom and understand it. And what's a real practical example, something that easily comes to mind? What easily comes to mind is that tightness in the throat is often the words you never got to say or the sensation of choking back tears. And if a person is noticing that they always get tightness in their throat in a particular situation or around a particular person, when they have interviewed that sensation and gotten to know it in the therapy room, they might notice this is happening. Well, behind every behavior is a feeling and behind every feeling is a need. So this behind every feeling is a what I'm sorry, behind every behavior is a feeling and behind every feeling is a need. So let's say, that you, you clench up, you get really tight and you feel that tightness in your throat in a particular situation. And the feeling is, I, I'm not heard here and I don't feel safe or I don't feel comfortable coming to voice. And then the need behind that is to actually have a sense of safety in coming to voice. It demystifies the somatized symptoms. It makes you see your body as your friend rather than your foe. And then it's a matter of, do you change yourself or do you change your environment? But I really try to teach trauma survivors to befriend their body and meet it with more curiosity and compassion. Because when you're chronically fearful, you feel very betrayed by your body and it feels intrusive and and strange and unfamiliar. And you're saying don't run away from it. It's almost like you, you want them to embrace it and, and embrace it like on steroids. Be really curious. Dig into that uncomfortable state. Exactly. And and the hope is to teach people in a way that they will be on their own someday and they will negotiate with their own biofeedback and do it independently or talk a friend to doing it. And this wisdom is with them and it's theirs in the world. That's the best case scenario. Interesting. You know? Okay, so that's mind-body techniques. You also talk about ego state work. What is that? So ego state work, it it initially came out in the 1960s. The most recent wave of it is internal family systems. I know that's a mouthful. And you're with all trauma modalities, you have one foot in the present and one foot in the past. And you're compassionately witnessing an earlier self from a place of safety. 
So often when you're in trauma work, you're meeting your younger self, your teenage self, maybe your younger adult self at different points in your life that were very difficult. You're often meeting those earlier versions of yourself. So with internal family systems specifically, we personify your defense mechanisms. So let's say there's a part of you that works too much or that numbs out on the couch with comfort food or engages in risky, ritualistic, compulsive behaviors uh, or self-destructive behaviors. When you get to know your defense mechanism and befriend it and compassionately witness it, it's often trying to divert away from pain or protect you in some way. And then, you know, these are called managers. Um, and then there's firefighters, which are very much numbing parts that are distraction, avoidance of pain. And then there's the wounded internal child. So internal family systems kind of comes into play with particular memories where you're about to access a memory from childhood. And it's a very formative core memory. But then all of a sudden, there's an impulse to block and get out and there's backlash. This negotiation with the different parts of you, the part of you that's mad, the part of you that's sad, the part that wants to process your trauma, the part that's feeling fearful of processing the trauma, the part that wants to love and be loved, the part that wants to isolate from everyone. It helps us to iron out these internal conflicts so that it feels more like a harmonic symphony from within rather than a chaotic rhapsody where you're being pulled in many directions. Mm. Have you ever had to try to help someone that's gone through a lot of trauma that, that ha happens to be a uh, suffering from maybe like a narcissistic personality or borderline personality? I would imagine if you have, that would be a tremendously challenging thing for you as the clinician to overcome, to help that patient, because they're probably a very difficult case study well you're you're actually bringing up a very interesting topic in that um a lot of people that have personality disorder have complex trauma but a lot of people with complex trauma don't have a personality disorder if that makes sense yes so one of the cornerstones of borderline personality disorder is splitting and splitting is where you go from overly idealizing someone to scrutinizing them or if you remember being read fairy tales as a kid, um, the person with the nice smile and the nice hair was benevolent and kind of heart and wanted to save the world. And the person with a hunchback and a crooked face was evil and dark hearted and violent. And people were all good or all bad. And that childlike interpretation of the world remains with them. And they idealize people and build them up. But then they also scrutinize people and you know, become quite abusive and uh, volatile. Mm. And if you're working with a client that has borderline, you will become collateral damage in that hurricane. But it's important to work with them through that and their different parts and their distrusting parts and their self-protective parts and their guarded parts. But also to go back to that period in their time where it was so painful and so potent that a part of them got stuck and they never evolved past that time. Because often, you know, when there's a personality disorder, there's a younger part of self that's trapped and wounded and fearful in navigating the world. Mm. And that's so uh, complex and intense. 
you said that you get sucked in as a collateral damage. Elaborate on that, please. What exactly does that look like? So um, if you were in the eye of a storm, you can't prevent the storm from doing what it's doing, but you can regulate yourself. And sometimes when somebody with a personality disorder is in a tailspin and they're feeling very, very angry and distrustful, you have to stay the course with them and compassionately witness the rupture repair cycle and meet them with a lot of curiosity and compassion. And if you take that kind of ride with them a few times and you rupture repair with them several times, a lot of the defense mechanisms actually, and I'm saying this more in the therapy room than if you're in a romantic partnership, I, I would give very different advice then. But if you take this with them, the cycle several times of the rupture repair, a deeper trust is built and their awareness of their own defense mechanisms and their emotions and their triggers um, becomes apparent. And the more they soften towards themselves, the more they soften towards others. So you can absolutely do trauma processing when there is a personality disorder, but it's more complicated. And, you know, pretty much everyone with a personality disorder has probably gone through an immense period of emotional distress in their formative years that stifled their development. And, you know, having a relational repair and a stable, predictable, reliable relationship will bode very well for them in terms of their relationship with themselves and then how they bring that out into the world. So would that suggest that somebody that does suffer from one of these personality disorders was likely more uh, nurtured? I mean, this was potentially developed because of some experience in their life versus they were born with it. What's your take on that? I think I would take the dietesis stress model perspective, which is around a genetic predisposition plus the onset of a lot of environmental stress mm. that brings out, you know, the latency of a of a disorder. So it's a dual pronged approach. But yeah, you're saying. Mm. yeah. But I also feel that um, I'm actually not very diagnosis heavy, and I like to separate a person from their behaviors and their patterns and their defense mechanisms, and not so much what's wrong with them, but what happened to them, or how did they learn to protect themselves in certain ways, or how did they learn to communicate in certain ways, and when you go back to those touchstone memories and you process them and you change the meaning of them, it can, it can really reshape who the person was before it all happened. It can allow them to come home to themselves. Mm, that's powerful stuff. Uh, trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy. That's another step in this intensive. What, what is that? Well, again, you know, that saying of, behind every behavior is a feeling and behind every feeling is a need. Um, trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy from a trauma-informed lens, it associates your thoughts with your behaviors and it creates a bridge and it gives you a deeper understanding of why you do the things you do and how you learned to move through the world. And um, it's really also sewn into the fabric of you know, the beginning stages of EMDR where you're trying to learn um, a person's history in terms of their family, their childhood, uh, their beliefs, their values, their behavioral patterns, 
And it's giving them a language and a way to really understand themselves so that they understand that these patterns are actually very predictable. And if there's a pattern that they're aware of that they don't like, they have the power to interrupt the pattern. And so, you know, it's, it's a very useful modality in that way. And then you finish it off with the attachment-based therapy, which I think we kind of hit on a little earlier. Well, you know, it's pretty much saying that in those first kind of zero to eight years, um, if you have a stable, predictable, reliable, trustworthy parent, and you learn that, you know, the world is an intrinsically safe place and it's okay to be vulnerable and trusting, then, you know, it gives you a certain advantage. And if you grew up in a volatile household where it was unpredictable and volatile and scary, there's a whole array of defense mechanisms that you learned in order to stay safe and navigate. And I like to think of defense mechanisms kind of like inflammation, you know, inflammation in the body when it happens initially to promote blood flow and reduce the risk of infection. It's, you know, it's, it's positive for healing, but we all know that chronic inflammation causes a whole host of issues and defense mechanisms are similar. If you have a very volatile, unpredictable, abusive presence in your household and you learn to repress your emotions and be very silent and accommodating and internalizing, maybe that was the most sophisticated thing you could do at the time to survive. But then in adulthood, that defense mechanism can inadvertently place you in very unsafe situations that can be re-traumatizing. And so, you know, really going back to the beginning of the story, the prologue of the story and how you learned to move through the world in the way you did and those key kind of potent memories that were especially salient or traumatizing. And by processing each of them, you can really rewrite the story. And I like to, you know, the three-pronged approach of um, processing old traumatic memories, going through present-day triggers, and then finally working towards a future template or a North Star of the life that you'd like to lead. And that's a very satisfying walk to take with a person. Mm, I'm sure it's about as rewarding as it can get to help somebody turn around a lifetime full of negativity and bad feelings and traumatic situations. And I assume it never fully goes away for some people clearly because it is the damage is done at times, but to go ahead. It's interesting as you say, you know, first off, I don't like the word the damage is done because if I could, I wish that it was um, complex post-traumatic injury rather than disorder. Because I do believe in the ability to heal. Um, and sometimes it's resolved, but then something happens to reawaken all the pain. Like they 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 come into a very toxic work situation or there's a, an abusive, manipulative relationship. And, and at certain points, it can be resolved and it can be neutralized. And, you know, in therapy, you hope to give someone the wings to fly in a safe space to land. And then sometimes a person will come back a couple of years later and say, I just had a horrible experience with X, Y, and Z, and it reawoken all of my old pain and defense mechanisms. Mm. So you're correct in what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. It's very, very interesting and complex. One thing that I've uh, experienced is it's very strange. This has happened 
very sporadically throughout my adult life, not many times, but there have been times where I've just been sitting around and I feel like I'm having an anxiety dream while I'm awake. Oh. And it's very strange. It's a very weird feeling because I can't even tell you what I just, it's a few seconds and I feel like anxiety and a sense of kind of just, you know, those, those uncomfortable feelings and tingles. And it's like, and I'm remembering a dream or like a bad dream that I just recently had. But when I come out of it, I can't really articulate what I was just thinking about. So is it too intrusive for me to go into this with you? Do you, are you open? If I Sure. Okay. So, um, you know, with classic dream interpretation, you'll often ask someone, what was the feeling state of the dream? So you're awake. Even though, uh, real quick, uh, Dr. Jill, we do only have a few minutes, as you know, to before we finish. But yeah, if you can go through it, you know. Okay, I'll be super happy quick. To. I'll, be, I'll be two minutes. Sure. <laughs> so you have tingles, and it's a feeling state in your body that you can name as anxiety. Mm-hmm. And then what you ask is, how does that feeling state relate to your present day life? Do you feel like that feeling state is being awoken in the present? Is there something activating that feeling state? And you don't have to say what it is, but... Yes, I believe that there's a level of angst that I that I carry. Um, Pervasively, or does it get activated by a person or a? No, I think it's more activated by just uh, by myself. I mean, yeah. Okay. Okay. So you're having this somatic memory, I think, and it's getting activated by your environment, and. It's interesting with you because it's not just coming up circumstantially. It feels like it's more pervasive. It's always there. Um, yeah, you know, and it's it's something that that sometimes I'm fine with it. And other times I carry around a lot of angst about it. And I think that it kind of manifests sometimes. It, it, I, I notice it, too, if I if I drink too much. Yeah, yeah. You know, and then a few days later, a day or two later, I'll have like this feeling of like, all right, you're feeling this this thing again. And And, uh, I've done some research on it because it's an uncomfortable feeling. Yeah. And it is a real thing. I've done some research on it that there are people that experience these anxiety dreams while they're awake. It's a very strange feeling. Well, the body feels the pain you don't allow yourself to express and trauma leaves behind clues. And this feeling state, you know, it's a couple of days after drinking. And it's interesting, is there kind of questions in the mind of what did I say? And are people judging me? Or No, no. I'll, I'll, I'll dig into it more with you when we get off. Okay. But uh, <laughs> no, nothing like that. And it's nothing, it's nothing, uh, it's really, most people would probably think I'm crazy. But, um, you know, it's something that I have noticed very sporadically throughout my adult life. I mean, it. It's only happened a handful of times, but when it does, it's it's uncomfortable. Well, if you were if you were bringing that into a session, um, you would go with the feeling state of it, the belief. You know, there's a there's definitely a a meaning you make of it. It could be not being in control, or it could be something else. You you associate it with angst and anxiety, and that is that is actually something you would process with EMDR, and as you go kind of deeper into it images or memories associated with the feeling state would reveal themselves to you and you'd be able to anchor into where did that begin or, or where did, what is the float back memory and that would interesting 
Interesting. Oh, it's beautiful stuff. Uh, you, you're doing some great work. I wish we had a little more time. I do have a, a business meeting to get to shortly. Um, but this is fascinating stuff. I always love talking to people in your positions because what you do every day, I give you so much credit because you're able to take everyone's crap, for lack of a better word. And and you still are, you know, you still have to go live your life and you're, you're helping people. But it's got to be hard sometimes, I would imagine, to separate it because you're you're only human at the end of the day. Well, I guess the best thing about this job is that it's relationship based. So you get to see someone coming in, you know, feeling very, very activated and mistrusting of the process to developing self-wisdom to making bold, courageous decisions in their life. And when you see that growth arc and you get to see that character evolution, that's very satisfying. And Mm. I've had jobs where I've only been in the crisis intake part or I've only got to see the beginning of the story, but not the middle or the end. And that can be demoralizing and that can make you feel not hopeful. Sure. But when you get to see a person's full healing arc, from start to finish, that's really wonderful. You know, it's, oh, it's, it's tremendous stuff that you're doing. Dr. Jillian O'Shea Brown, where can people find you online? So I'm on um I'm on TikTok, Instagram, uh, LinkedIn, and Facebook as Dr. Jillian O'Shea Brown, and I'm on Twitter as Dr. O'Shea Brown. But if you Google me, I think I'm the only one with this name. <laughs> that's right. It's Jillian with a G. So go for yeah. it. Yeah, And I, I share a lot of uh, journaling techniques and meditations and psychoeducation online. It's a community of people that are trauma healers and self healers, and it's open to everyone. And the goal is just to be helpful. Absolutely. And we've linked it in the show notes, folks. If you want to learn more about Dr. Jill and her practice, click the link and you could find more there. Uh, again, really great connecting with you and, and appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. And uh, thank you for doing this great work.